This is Seattle's Morning News. I'm Travis Mayfield in for Dave Ross, along with Chris Sullivan and Colleen O'Brien. So the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court this week, hearing some arguments over a bankruptcy deal with Purdue Pharma, the maker of, um, you know, many opioid uh, Oxycontin, for example. Um, and, and this deal, it, it shielded members of the wealthy Sackler family that owns Purdue Pharma um, from future opioid related lawsuits. And the question is, can that family actually be shielded? So let's turn now to New York Times investigative reporter David Farenthold. David, good morning. What's at stake in this case? Well, there's sort of two levels of what's at stake. What's at stake here in this particular case is whether the Sackler family, this this giant settlement that states and various other governments, tribes, the federal government have in place with the Sackler family can go forward. So the Sacklers have agreed to pay some very large sum of money to states, tribes, and individuals who were harmed by their OxyContin and other products. Um, but the condition that the Sacklers have agreed to is they're going to do this, they're going to pay all this money out, and that's the end of it. Nobody else can sue them. Even people who are not parties to this suit can't, can't sue them later for the same offenses. And the question here is, can you do that? Can you sign away, you know, can these states and other people who are settling with the Sacklers sign away the rights to sue of other people who are not even involved in this? Um, and the Supreme Court is sort of going to have to decide if you can do that. And if you can do it, can you do it through the bankruptcy process, which is how this has been done so far? And what could this mean for the future of Purdue? Well, you know, Purdue as a company is diminished. The question is, what, it, what, would, it, what would it mean for the Sacklers? So the Sacklers are very, very, very rich after years of uh, producing OxyContin and other products have been blamed for the opioid crisis. Um, so they're going to still be rich after they give up this huge settlement. It's a, it's a billion dollar settlement, but they're going to still be rich. The question is, is that the end of the line for them uh, or are they, they going to be able to keep some of the money they got through this business? All right. Well, we have you. I want to ask you a couple of other questions about different stories. A lot of talk this week, a lot of headlines about former President Donald Trump's mm, turn when it comes to his rhetoric, maybe more violent, more author- authoritarian when he's out on the campaign trail, even starting to accuse President Biden of being anti-democratic, which seems like a very interesting argument since it seems to be the one that President Biden has used against him. What do you make of the change here or maybe the ratcheting up of for the former president's rhetoric. Oh, I think your listeners should really know there's a difference here. And they may think that this is Donald Trump, the guy we've seen run now three times for president, uh, but it's not the same guy. It's certainly not the same guy that it was in 2016. If you remember, you know, 2016, there was a lot of ambiguity about what Trump would do. Uh, and there was a lot of question about whether he really meant the things that he said he was going to do and whether he really, you know, could, could even effectuate them if he was elected. So there's two differences. Now, one is the rhetoric Trump is using is much, much different. It, it's more violent. He calls his opponents vermin, calls for prosecuting his political opponents in a very sort of concrete way. You know, I'm going to go after as soon as I get into office. I'm going to go after the people that, you know, my opponents, Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, people like that, and try to put them in jail. The second thing is that there are, you know, unlike in Trump's first term, where he took office with a bunch of sort of moderate Republicans who worked to sort of ameliorate or thwart his wishes, he's going to take office with a different set of people this time. He's going to take office with people who are dedicated to using him to change the federal government, to, you know, use the one of the proposals these people have talked about is using the military on day one to put down protests against Trump. They've talked about jailing political opponents, prosecuting the president's enemies. You know, this is going to if, if Trump takes over again, it's going to be a very different and I think much darker and more authoritarian version of government than we thought possible. So it's important for listeners to know that it's, even if you if you were OK about Trump the first time, it's not going to be the same Trump who takes over this time. And not just the administration, not just the political folks that he brings in with him. I mean, I, I keep reading these headlines about like systemically going into sort of nonpartisan government 
government agencies and sort of work a day employees and just seeing, are you on our team or are you on some other team? That seems very worrisome as well. That is different. I mean, the, the, that's something Trump has been very explicit about, that he wants to go into the federal bureaucracy and remove people who are not on his team. Now, there are legal rules in place that say you can't do that in, in the non-appointed civil service. But remember, Trump's changed the Supreme Court. He's changed the complexion of the courts. You know, he, there were lots of things that people said he couldn't do in his first term, but he did, uh, especially in the federal bureaucracy. So, yes, that, it's, it's more than just the appointees changing the whole face of the federal government. I want to now take us to the Republican Party in Florida, if I can. The head of Florida's Republican Party indicated Saturday that he will not step down while facing an investigation into sexual assault, rejecting calls by Florida governor and, of course, GOP presidential candidate Ron DeSantis to give up his role as the party's top operative. What are the details on that investigation? Well, there's so many parallels to Trump, right? Once you, you pledge your party's loyalty to Trump, you can act like Trump does. Would Trump have resigned if he was accused of something like this? No, he didn't resign for his president when he was accused of something like this. So, you know, I think that the, he's showing this this decision that, the, you know, as long as you can claim the Democrats are after you or the deep states after you or whoever, you know, you don't have to resign in shame. That's that's sort of a sucker's move. So I think that, uh, you know, this is sort of following Trump's, play, Trump's playbook. And Moms for Liberty are involved in this in some way. Can you explain that to folks? Moms for Liberty, you listeners have probably heard about them a little bit. This group that got started uh, to sort of get involved in school board disputes, they get mad about, you know, the, the invites over what books are in the school library, things like that. But it's grown into this much, much bigger movement that's aligned with Ron DeSantis. Uh, and I think sort of as a similar mindset that as long as you're on the quote unquote right side, you don't have to follow the rules as everybody in the same rules as everybody else. And you certainly don't have to step down once you're accused of something. The other story I want to ask you about is it's very cloak and dagger. This former career American diplomat charged with serving as a secret agent for communist Cuba going back decades. Um, that's what yeah, prosecutors are portraying. Story. Can you kind of bring how did that even come to light? That is a wild story. Yeah. So this is a guy who was a career State Department employee. He was the U.S. ambassador to Bolivia and to Argentina. And he also for a while was one of the top U.S. diplomats in Cuba. Uh, and the accusation is that he's, yeah, he was a spy for Cuba for 40 years. And it only came to light after he left office, after he left the State Department. He had adopted this kind of far right wing persona. Um, and then the FBI approached him basically with an undercover operative who said he was a Cuban intelligence agent. And the guy sort of admitted it, thinking that he was talking to his own side. Um, it's amazing. I mean, it, both for the length of the, uh, the, the apparent time he was a spy, but also for the influence he had. So one of the big things this guy did was when he was the U.S. ambassador to Bolivia, he made a big statement condemning Evo Morales, a left-wing political candidate, in like 2002, I think, and got that guy elected, like got Cuba's guy elected by having the U.S. condemn him and provoking a backlash. So, you know, he's had a, he had a lot of real influence uh, in addition to whatever intelligence he passed. He had a lot of real influence that helped Cuba's uh, reach in the, southern, in the southern hemisphere. And what's the next step here? Does he go to court? What are the consequences? What, what, what could he face? He's not charged with spying, so he could face a very long prison sentence. I think he is already retirement age. Um, but yes, it's both the consequences for him and for the State Department to figure out what did he compromise and how did they miss it for so long. New York Times investigative reporter David Therenthold, thank you very much. As always, a really good discussion this morning. Lots of important stories. We appreciate your time. Thank you. It is 6.37 here on Seattle's Morning News in celebration of the 35th annual Holiday Magic event to support Treehouse for Foster Kids. Cairo News Radio's Mickey Gomez speaks to a young woman about her success with the program. 
Nevaeh Brewer says life changed eight years ago when her social worker introduced her to the Grad Success Program at Treehouse, a nonprofit serving Seattle foster care youth. Brewer says she was bouncing from one shelter to another, on the verge of dropping out of school and caring for a baby when... I got a lovely coach who just was amazing. She says grad success coach Kevin Burke inspired the change. He just like excelled my life. I got my GED in two weeks. Brewer says. Got my first full-time job and started working full-time. And so he was just like an absolute pillar. From there, she moved up to the Treehouse Launch Success Program. I had finished my associates around the same time. And I told my coach at the time, I was like, I think I'm going to apply for a job as a joke. So at the age of 21, she applied for a position at Treehouse. Maybe I'll get some good feedback on how to get my career where I want it to be. And an hour later, I got a call saying I got the job. And I was like, well, what now? She says Treehouse became a guardian of my dreams, providing beyond the essentials like clothing and hygiene products. They gave me so much more. And that's why we featured Treehouse, so it can continue to help others like Brewer. When it comes to trust, she says Treehouse raises the bar. They gave me a safe haven, uh, a safe adult, which is often something youth don't have, who believed in me and cared about me. She says... And the Christmas gifts are pretty cool, too. That's another thing that foster kids often don't get is Christmas gifts when you're not in a home. A small donation can help Treehouse continue its tradition of giving. You can find the link on MyNorthwest.com. Brewer says it's not just about the presents. Treehouse helped when she needed it most. There was plenty of times where Treehouse had come in with financial resources to help keep me housed as a young mother. She says there's even a treehouse store with essentials like diapers, seasonal appropriate clothing, toys, educational books, like even things for me that benefited him, such as like help getting my vital documents, help with my car insurance so that I know we're driving safely. And your donations keep the treehouse store open. Brewer says she credits manager Jesse for her continued success. He has just been a, a shining light that guides me through not only my job, but my education. He has this belief in my potential beyond what I even do. Treehouse says its mission is to serve as many foster kids as it can and needs our help. Find out how you can make a difference at MyNorthwest.com. Mickey Gomez, Cairo News Radio. Mickey, thank you. Hey, oh, let's go. Let's go indeed. Time for choke points. Lost on all the jokes about Washdot giving its, you know, snowplows those ridiculous but amazing names is that the towplows actually do a really good job. Chris is here with that story. And now we've all chuckled at the names. As I said, Plowy McPlow Plow, the big Laplowski, Sir Plows a lot, and the newest towplow, Betty Whiteout. When the naming began a few years ago, I thought these were just some new plows and not something new. But they are. So once again, I've been caught not paying attention. Never, no. But I found myself behind a tow plow for the first time over the weekend. It was on I-90 in western Montana. It was impressive. At first, I wasn't sure what I was looking at because the truck was in the left lane and the tow plow was jutting out into the right lane, throwing sand and plowing the second lane. And there wasn't another driver there. I wasn't exactly sure what I was looking at. Is it like at. a sidecar? Yeah, and that's the magic of this tow plow because it can do two lanes at once with only one driver. 
It extends out about 30 degrees to the side of the vehicle using its hydraulic system, 26 foot mold board. You can clear two full lanes from fog line to fog line of I-90 at the exact same time. Ryan Overton is with the Washington Department of Transportation Communications in the East Region around Spokane. That's where all four of the state's tow plows are currently headquartered. He says these plows have improved the efficiency of clearing the roads in eastern Washington in a big way. You might think in snowy conditions, having a secondary piece of equipment slid out at some sort of angle with one driver uh, being more difficult to drive, but it actually acts as like an anchor to keep the truck planted in the lane itself. So I asked Overton why these plows aren't used, say, on Snoqualmie Pass, which, of course, did close during last Friday's snowstorm. He says they have been used in emergency situations at Snoqualmie during bad storms, but towing with these plows up hills is an ideal. They do have some more difficult terrain as far as the hills go. And it is a very heavy piece of equipment to tow. So I don't know if it would be the best utilization of that product to get it up and down. Uh, so call me pass. Now, these tow plows work best on a flatter terrain where there are usually only two lanes. But Overson, Overton says they are often used in downtown Spokane in tandem with other plows so they can get to all three lanes there. And while eastern Washington drivers might have rolled up on one of these bad boys and been prepared for it, I certainly was not. Our cars stacked up behind the one in western Montana, and I thought we might have been a little too close. Overton's advice when you get up behind one. If you can see the plow's mirrors, uh, then they can see you. And that's the biggest struggle that we have is people following too close to our plows. They can't see behind them. But it's always better to give plows a little more room than you think you need. Be sure to check out the videos, including the one I took at mymortnorthwest.com so you can get an idea what these things actually look like. And I will never, ever Make fun of Plowing McPlow Plow or his siblings again. So I know we started naming these things silly names in recent years. How long have the new plows been on the road? Basically, this first the first one they got was in 2012, actually. Okay. They okay. kind of did it as a pilot because yeah. this was newer technology. Then they got another one in 2019, then in 2020, and then they got the latest one last year. Uh, so they've been uh, slowly but surely adding to the fleet. And the other thing is, is they when they do maintenance, they're also buying different and heavier trucks that have, you know, plow trucks mm-hmm. to be able to carry the equipment to make sure that they can handle the load because not all plows can handle the trailer, the tow plow that comes along with it. So uh, really interesting technology. It was cool to see it work. Uh, and yeah, it was, uh, again, caught with my pants down that I did not know something had happened Pull your pants since up. 2012 <laughs> as a transportation reporter. That's pretty embarrassing. That's no, good. It's good. All right. For the sake of all of us. Pull up well, it's eyes. also warm outside. I should have been wearing shorts today. Right. We've talked about this. Yeah. <laughs> you and I've been talked about it to people upstairs, too. You know, oh. we were naming plows before. <laughs> Before the break, and uh, one of our texters in the 253, uh, itsy bitsy teeny weeny yellow anti slip machiney. <laughs> oh, that's good. That's impressive. Wow. That's a lot there. Ding, 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 ding. Welcome back to Seattle's Morning News. We have entered a new phase in the Israeli-Gaza war. And joining us now from Jerusalem, as she has been over the last two months, CBS's Linda Gradstein. Linda, thanks for being here this morning. Bring us up to speed of what's been happening in the last 24 to 48 hours. Well, since the ceasefire broke down on Friday, um, Israel has now expanded its fighting to southern Gaza, right? Israel had divided the Gaza Strip into two areas, northern Gaza and southern Gaza, and until now, Most of the fighting was in northern Gaza, and Israel had told civilians to leave. Now it started its attack in and around Khan Yunus, which is the Gaza Strip's second largest city after Gaza City. Uh, And it says that it is attacking Hamas targets. 
Uh, Palestinians say at least 300 people have been killed since the fighting and went to southern Gaza. Uh, it has told civilians in, Ga in Khan Yunus to leave, although it's not really clear where they would go. More than a million Palestinians already left northern Gaza, went to southern Gaza. They're sheltering in U.N. schools and places like that. And this comes as, uh, you know, the United States is pressuring Israel to do more to limit civilian deaths. Uh, so it seems that the fighting has now entered the second stage. Israeli officials say that they have two goals in this uh, operation in general. One is the release of the hostages. There are still 137 Israelis being held hostage. And the second goal is to uh, make sure that Hamas can no longer present any kind of a military threat. Since it sounds like there is no place for folks in Gaza to go that is safe, can you bring us up to speed on what the, the fuel and the food situation, the medical situation currently is in Gaza for the folks who are, are stuck there? Right. So the, the incre there has been a significant increase in humanitarian aid. It started uh, during the seven-day ceasefire. A lot of stuff got in. And even after the fighting has resumed, a lot of humanitarian aid is getting in food, fuel. So that seems to be a little bit less of an issue than it was before. The, the issue more is how can people stay safe. Uh, Israel has released a map with, that it divided Gaza into all these little areas. And it says that it will broadcast where the fighting is and hopefully uh, civilians will stay away and they will try to do what they can uh, not to hit civilians. But it sounds like even some of the main highways and main byways and roads are even being declared as dangerous. So there may be this map, but it seems like how do you even get to these supposedly safer areas? Right. Well, I think Israel, in some cases at least, is going to say that there's like a humanitarian corridor. That's what they did in northern Gaza. They, they said, on this road, we will not bomb from 10 a.m. to noon or something like that. Um, and, but it's going to be very complicated. You're talking about almost 2 million people. You're talking about a warren of tunnels and underground things underneath. You're talking about thousands of Hamas fighters. Um, so it's going to be a very complicated military operation. And, and if there are these maps, the way to access, access them would be over the Internet. But it sounds like the Internet has been spotty at best, if not a blackout in many regions in Gaza. Right. Well, the, the, it, the uh, blackout has sort of uh, come and gone. Last night there was a blackout. Today there isn't. Um, again, so that's a very good question where how people are supposed to find out. There's also a hotline where Israel has given a number where people know of any hostages and they give information about where those hostages are being held. Uh, they will get a reward. I don't think it's uh, people in, in Gaza are, you know, scared and I can't imagine them giving this kind of information. But um, it's, it's difficult to know. I mean, it may be that Israel, for example, will not hit U.N. schools because it knows that there are tens of thousands of people sheltering there. Um, and uh, I know that Israel is uh, becoming very sensitive to this idea of trying to stop, uh, to, to minimize civilian casualties. And, and you mentioned it briefly, but let's expand on this, what the U.S. here is trying to do to protect civilians. I mean, the calls for, you know, ratcheting things down now go as high as the U.S. vice president. Where, where does this effort to try and, you know, get hostilities to simmer a bit stand? Well, you know, I think Israel is very sensitive to American public opinion, certainly to what President Biden says. And, you know, it is interesting that that call came from Kamala Harris and not from uh, President Biden himself. 
Uh, that said, Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, was here over the weekend and, and has been pushing for this. Uh, the sense in Israel is that there is not unlimited time uh, to finish what it feels it needs to do in Gaza, that the international pressure is growing for some kind of a ceasefire. But what Israel says is that if they stop the fighting now, with Hamas basically still in power in Gaza, with Hamas leader Yahya Sinwar still there, he actually visited the hostages in the tunnels while they were being held, um, that Israel will not have really achieved its goals and that it will only be another matter of time until there is another fight. I think most Israelis, you know, no matter whether they're on the left or the right, want Israel to do more to get rid of Hamas and think that perhaps that would open some kind of political horizon for some kind of deal with the people of Gaza and the West Bank. Do we have a better and more specific idea of the end game, the post-fighting um, from Netanyahu or, or from his government at this moment? No. I mean, uh, Netanyahu has been very uh, clear that he doesn't see the Palestinian Authority under Mahmoud Abbas, who is 87 and not very effective, and the Palestinian Authority is seen as very corrupt. He does not see the PA as someone who could step in, while the United States has said they would like to see a strengthened PA be in charge of Gaza. The other issue is who's going to rebuild Gaza. You're talking about a billion, billion dollar project. I mean, so, but at least right now in Israel, while the fighting is going on, no one is really thinking about what happens afterwards. CBS News' Linda Gradstein from Jerusalem this morning. Linda, we appreciate your time. Thank you very much. Now for your daily dose of kindness brought to you by Heritage Homecraft. Imagine this, kindness in the middle of a stressful commute. It could happen today as many of you are struggling to get to where you're going. And one woman in Connecticut found that kindness to be effervescent. Here's NBC affiliate reporter Jolie Sherman. It was a chaotic morning on the road for Erica Teal as she was taking her daughter to daycare. First, an encounter with an angry driver, then a meltdown from her toddler and a scary lane change with a tractor trailer. So at this point, I'm, I'm really starting to feel the effects of the morning. I'm starting to feel, you know, just all those emotions that any person can feel when they're just trying to do everything and every and it feels like everybody's coming at them. That was until Erica noticed a woman dancing to the radio in her minivan. She is bumping and she is singing and she is just I can tell she was whatever she was listening to at that time was just a vibe. Erica says as they made eye contact, the woman smiled and continued to dance, this time in Erica's direction. A small act of kindness that completely changed Erica's mood. I just started laughing. I was like, man, I was like, that that woman, she is she is just loving life right now, and I love that for her. Grateful for this moment, Erica posted a long message on social media thanking the driver, letting her know she was having an anxiety attack at the time. But her positive energy turned her whole day around. She wasn't expecting the driver to see her message, but she did and commented on the post. It was the first thing I read in the morning, and it just made my day. I wasn't even awake 20 minutes, and I saw it. And I was like, I have to tell her it was me. Felicia Jones helps people with disabilities find jobs in the community. She says jamming out is something she does regularly with her clients and when she's alone. I was just jamming out to Shania Twain, my normal everyday thing that I do. 
just jam out to music and I just start dancing in the car. This interaction happened on Wednesday, and so far more than 700 people have reacted to the post. Many have also shared in the comment section how this made their day better. I was like, I'm going to dance. I'm just going to continue on dancing. And she just looked at me and we just locked eyes and I just kept going. A bad day made better. All because someone stopped to spread some kindness. Nothing better than catching the eye of a stranger and connecting and having a good moment. Joining us now from the G and Ursula show, which can be heard nine to noon right here on Cairo News Radio. Ursula Royteen. Good morning. Hi, good morning. <laughs> so Ursula, our reporter Matt Markovich has been reporting on this consumer bill that might get introduced in the uh, Washington uh, legislature next year that would make it easier for consumers to use gift cards that they maybe they forgot about. So it would make it possible if this is passed to cash out small amounts on gift cards to load them on a mobile app that, you know, you actually want to use it, make it possible to combine payments like gift cards and cash. I just start with, are you a gift card person? Do you give them? Do you get them? I both give them and I get them. And I actually just looked at my wallet and I have four unused gift cards. Right. (laughs) I have some too. (laughs) Yes. Yes. I actually love this idea. The part that I'm skeptical about is uh, that money that is unspent would go to the state. Mm. So instead of, for example, just in the last year alone, Starbucks had over $200 million of revenue in unspent gift cards just this year alone. What are those people not ordering their lattes for? (laughs) So this is a big moneymaker. Companies like Starbucks and others assume that there are going to be a lot of people like myself and whoever else has gift cards that you should like, I'll use it at some point. Mm -hmm. But you you keep them sitting there and then it goes years and then a lot of people just assume well like it's it's old so i can't use it anymore that's not true when though it's yeah. exactly like in, in the state, state of washington law, yeah. Yeah. there's no uh, expiration date for the gift cards so i like this idea in that it favors the consumer versus the corporation. Mm. So a couple of things that they're looking at is, for example, this would not affect companies that make less than $25 million in revenue a year. So we're talking, it really targets yeah, big, big companies. the big, big yeah. companies. Who can afford it. Exactly. 70% of states in, in, the United, in the United States are still are already doing what the state of Washington is proposing mm. to do. Um, and again, I, you know, who would you rather have that unclaimed money? The corporation? Yeah. I mean, it, it's like, it, what's the lesser of two evils, maybe? I, I guess, but it is their money. I mean, you went there, you specifically spent your money there to buy a gift card because you like your pro- the product and you want to give it to a friend. Right. That money belongs to the company. It belongs to the person who is the recipient. Only because say- a product wasn't exchanged? Exactly. Because to me, a gift card is as good as money. You've given the money to the company. Yes. You get the card in return. Yes. That and money I think belongs that- to the company. I think that could be also an argument that is said, but I would, again, look to favor the consumer in this case because um, that is money that is actually belonging to someone else, in my opinion, other than the company. Hmm. And um, who would you rather have the money? So the the state's idea is um, we take that money and we use it for programs to help the poor or help, Hmm. you know, uh, just different programs that... If I, though, three years from now say, oh, wait a minute, I still want to use my, I, I realize I have a gift card that mm-hmm. I haven't used, um, I could still do it. And then oh, interesting. the, the so state would okay. reimburse. So that so it would, again, not hurt the consumer. That's yeah. nice. 
the ones that are going to be upset about it are going to be the big corporations. Yeah, because they still have to provide the product exactly. that they kind of wrote, wrote exactly. off years ago. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But I love the other parts of the bill that, that uh, Matt's been reporting uh, about or the, the proposed changes where... You know, like if you have a little bit of uh, amount left over on your gift card, that you can still use it, or you can combine it with yeah, some other form of payment. Deal. I think that is a big deal. Because sometimes you do have like a buck left, and you're exactly. like, well, I can get a five dollar exactly. latte and lay out the four bucks myself. Exactly. Yeah. So I think to make that easier for us as consumers to use, I'm all in favor yeah. of that. Ursula Roitine, your show starts at nine. We'll be listening. Thank you very much. It's Chris, if you're watching the live stream, still practicing his wand swooshes. Getting better. I'm Travis Mayfield. In for Dave Ross. This is Seattle's Morning News. Colleen O'Brien is here as well. One of the three Tacoma police officers charged with killing Manny Ellis took the stand yesterday. Cairo News Radio's Kate Stone was in Pierce County at the courthouse and is joining us live in studio now with some details. So bring us up to speed. How did yesterday go? Yeah, good morning, guys. This is the first time we are hearing from any of the three officers that is charged in the death of Manny Ellis. And this is Matthew Collins. He's fa- he's one of the two facing a murder charge. And he told the jury for the first time his side of the story, which kept pretty close to what we heard in his original statements to detectives in the days following the incident. He didn't change his story all that much. However, his story is very different from what the eyewitnesses we heard from earlier in this trial have been saying. So Officer Collins said that Manny Ellis, they saw him wandering in an intersection, potentially trying to get into cars that were in the intersection, and they called him over. And Officer Collins said as soon as he saw Manny Ellis coming over, he thought this might be a problem. This is what he said. I immediately knew something was wrong. He, his eyes were super wide and he was like sweating profusely. And it was it was a cold night. He said that Manny Ellis appeared to be on some sort of drug, but he wasn't sure. However, he thought that there was definitely some aggression coming from him. He told the officers, I have warrants. And Officer Collins says, he said, okay, go sit on the sidewalk. We're going to look you up, et cetera, et cetera. But then he said he started getting uncomfortable because Manny Ellis started fixating on his partner, Officer Christopher Burbank, who's also charged with murder in this case. His body language, the way he was looking at Officer Burbank, concerned me greatly. And he said as an officer, he's learned how to read people, which was something that caused a little bit of stir in the courtroom. He said that he he had a feeling that this was going to escalate into violence. You get used to body language. You get used to studying people. And there's a way that people look at you when you're about to be in a fight. Now, this is where it kind of differentiates from what the eyewitnesses said. Officer Collins said Manny Ellis began punching the patrol car window, which is actually felony assault on an officer. And he said, OK, I have to get out. I have to I have to arrest this guy. Punching a car is felony assault on an punching officer? Punching a patrol car is considered felony assault yeah. on an officer. Wow. Yes. OK. So Officer Collins says he got out of the car and he started to walk around the car. And this is where things get very murky because he says that Manny Ellis started attacking him. So as soon as I get to the front of the vehicle, he takes his um, focus off of Burbank and comes right at me and grabs me by my vest and picks me up and throws me backwards into the intersection. Now, no one else saw that, including Officer Burbank. None of the eyewitnesses saw that. Nobody saw Manny Ellis allegedly throw Officer Collins back into the intersection or throw him at all. So even the the officers have 
differing they stories do. of what they that have is interesting stories and yes. because they have two different lawyers too the the officers so they're all kind of they contradicting have each other three different lawyers yes because Uh-oh. you remember there's a third officer involved in here yeah. officer Timothy Rankin he showed up after the two officers, Burbank and Collins, had restrained Ellis. And Officer Collins was very emphatic that it's very important to get someone in handcuffs, especially when they are potentially on drugs, they are being combative, which he said, Manny Ellis was, he said, my only focus was getting him in handcuffs, and I did what I had to do. And that includes hitting him and you know knocking him to the ground, using a chokehold on him, which has been a very controversial part of this. But and in then- March of 2020 was... Part of a lateral the vascular police. restraint, yeah. yes. Because yes. after after George Floyd, a lot of police departments then Correct. got rid of. So I just wanted to make sure that that was clear to the listeners. This was yes. prior to a lot of the departments getting was, rid of. That. It was several months before George Floyd, yeah. and yes, it's it's still a controversial yeah. form of chokehold. But but those types of restraints were allowed back then, and he says that he he did what he had to do. Manny Ellis was shocked three times with a taser, etc. By the time Officer Rankin got there, Manny Ellis had been tied up by his hands and knees. He was face down on the ground. Officer Rankin is charged in this case with sitting on Manny Ellis's back for several minutes until paramedics arrived, allegedly cutting off his breathing. And what was interesting in the trial yesterday is Officer Collins appeared to be trying to differentiate himself and Burbank from Officer Rankin, essentially saying, you know, he was restrained. I wouldn't say controlled, but restrained. And we went back to our car. And then afterwards, we got, after other officers arrived, we got word that this was pretty serious, as in potentially a fatal situation. Mm. So it was interesting. There was kind of a little bit of a separation there between the actions of the initial officers, Burbank and Collins, and the actions of Officer Rankin. And I don't know if that was intentional or because up until this point, all three of them have sort of presented a united front that all of their actions were justified. And this case basically almost entirely hinges on the idea that there was a law passed in 2019, so several months before Manny Ellis died in March of 2020, but there was a law passed the the previous year by the state legislature that says if someone appears to be in medical distress, you have to help them. And so the prosecution has been trying to hammer home that these officers, they asked Officer Collins, did you hear him say he couldn't breathe? Because he's caught on video saying it multiple times, and someone, and only... Collins and Burbank were there at the time, says, shut the F up. Mm. And Collins said, well, that must have been me because Burbank, I've never heard him swear. And so. So Collins did hear Manny Ellis well, saying, I can't breathe. He, he told the prosecution he he was experiencing auditory exclusion, which happens when you can't sure. hear certain things in stressful situations. Sure. And so he claims that he couldn't hear it. However, Officer Rankin's later statement said that after Officer Rankin arrived, he could hear Manny Ellis say he couldn't breathe. And Officer Rankin's statement said, well, if you're still talking, you can breathe. So wow. there is definitely differentiating accounts of what happened. The testimony was was quite compelling, in my opinion, but also very kind of, I, I don't want to say all over the place, but there was definitely some some questions that arose even after. He, he appears to be done testifying, yeah. and I believe that we are expecting at least one of the other officers to testify 
potentially today. And this could be the last week of trial because we haven't gotten a complete schedule, but it, it appears the officers might be the last ones to testify. Did Collins get cross-examined by the prosecution he yesterday? Did. And yes. how did that go? Well, they asked him if he had heard that Manny Ellis had said repeatedly that he couldn't breathe and that he knew enough, he'd had CPR training and those types of things, to know enough to know that he... he needed to to step in and, and provide aid, which is, again, a lot of what this case hinges on is, did they use excessive force and did they break the law, albeit a new law, that they have to intervene if they see someone who is potentially, you know, in medical distress, even if it's a suspect? All right. Kate Stone reporting for us. Really interesting. Um, and we'll continue following this trial for you as well, especially since it may be the last week it as we be. kind of wait to see how this all shakes out. All right, Kate, thank you very thank much. You. Thanks for listening to Seattle's Morning News. I'm Dave Ross. And I'm Colleen O'Brien. Thanks for listening to the show's podcast. We're happy you're here. And you can keep up with the show and find some of the stories from today online at MyNorthwest.com.